Well, as Pastor Mark has shared, our retreat is steadily coming up. About two weeks from now, we gather together for four days for worship, for prayer, and for study of the Word. We encourage you, if you have not signed up, I think we have a record sign up. I think almost everyone's going. But for a few of you who have not signed up, please consider again and make time out to join us for a four-day spiritual feast. Uh, if you cannot make it for the full time, just come in for one spiritual meal or just one day and um, learn and grow with us. I love Cornerstone Retreats uh, for two reasons. Well, first reason is the time that I get to spend in fellowship with, with all of you. And second reason is that I'm not preaching. I'm not teaching. I'm not doing anything. All I'm doing is, well, there's no ping pong table, so I guess no ping pong this retreat. But I'll maybe dodgeball again or something like in that, in that vein. I'll be just there to hang out with all of you, to fellowship, to pray together, and to play together. So I always love our, time, our retreat, so look, hope to see you there and look forward to our time together. Uh, one more announcement is um, our summer, mission, summer missions ministry is still taking applications. Um, the dates are not set, so maybe some of you are still tentative about applying. We would ask you to go ahead and apply, and when the dates are um, finalized, we can discuss then whether you're able to go or not. If you're praying, we ask you to truly consider this great opportunity that we have to go overseas and proclaim the gospel with fellow um, partners in Christ, with Pastor Peter Smith and Yarda Cornell in Czech Republic, and with Pastor Bakichan Mukashev from Kazakhstan. Uh, we have opportunities this summer to serve overseas as well. And also, uh, a mission team in Orange County reaching out to our neighborhoods and our college campuses as well. Please consider and prayerfully apply for some remissions. All you married folks out there, let's set the pace with children. Let's lead the way. Consider, ask you to reconsider again. Uh, summer missions. And actually, we just heard this week that Pastor Bakachan will be joining us February 15th, arriving on um, 12.30 in the afternoon. He'll be joining us for our retreat, two services, possibly three services, and um, for our Shepherds Conference as well. We'll announce uh, more details about him when the date nears, but it's going to be an encouraging time to hear from him, um, his testimony and his ministry in that country. Well, continuing our study in John chapter 15. Oh, one more announcement. So many announcements today. Uh, if, our, if our Lord does not return by next week, as Mark has shared, next week is our sixth anniversary service. So it's uh, shocking to me that it's been six years since we first planted Cornerstone. We planted our church on Valentine's Day, February 14th, 1999. And here we are six years later, and we'll be celebrating God's faithfulness over the past six years. So, um, regular snacks, nothing special, but uh, we'll have a special guest speaker, our friend and partner in ministry, Pastor and Professor Larry Pettigrew will be coming and ministering God's Word in the first and second hour. I emailed him and asked him, and he said, definitely. I mean, there's definitely a heart, united heart, kindred spirit between him and our church, and it's just so appropriate for him to come and minister God's word to us. 
and we'll have, a, I think, a special slideshow um, next week. So uh, something to look forward to, I guess. You know, we're not into a lot of uh, fluff and service, but next week we'll give, we'll give a little allowance and have uh, pictures during our service. Okay, John 15. You know, many years ago when elevators were first installed in these high-rises, you know, they started building these tall buildings and, you know, technology was still archaic, but they installed these elevators. These elevators took a long time for it to come down and up and a lot of waiting uh, before and while you're in the elevators. So a lot of these hotels, when they installed these elevators, a lot of the customers complained because of the time that was wasted while they're inside the elevators going up and down the floors. Well, one guy had a bright idea. Let's install mirrors in these elevators and see what happens. And they did. And immediately, all the complaints stopped. No one complained anymore. Why? Because people were spending time in the elevators looking at themselves. A favorite pastime of many men and women. And this idea caught on throughout the world. Any country, you go to an elevator, what do you see inside? You will see mirrors, right? So that you will forget how much time is wasted going up and down the floors. Well, you know, I think it's a true truism for many that many people like to look at themselves in the mirror. Um, it is somewhat of an art for some men that I've noticed that every time they pass by a mirror, they can't help themselves but take a glance and take a look. You know, check their hair. They just checked a few minutes ago, but they got to check it again. Check their tie. Women, you know, sisters as well, they carry it with them. You know, at least guys don't carry it with us, but women, they have one, like a portable one that they use. You know, it's a a comforting thing maybe to look at ourselves in the mirror and see see our external appearance. Well, James 1.23 tells us that that the Bible is a mirror of, God's Word is a mirror as well. Bible is a mirror of God's Word. And God's Word reveals not our external appearance, not our physical appearance. But when we open the Word of God and we study it, when we peer into its contents, the Word of God reveals the state of our inner man, our spiritual side, our spiritual appearance. And that is why it is a difficult thing to study the Word of God. Looking at a physical mirror is not difficult. But looking at the spiritual mirror of God's Word is oftentimes uncomfortable. And sometimes it is painful to see ourselves in light of God's holiness, God's righteousness, to see the truth of who we are before God's holy sight. is a difficult thing. But week after week, Sunday after Sunday, we must do this as believers. It is an imperative that we look and examine carefully, examine ours carefully in light of God's Word because it is so beneficial to our souls. We cannot grow as Christians apart from this spiritual discipline of studying God's Word together as a church family. So here we are again, going verse by verse to the Gospel of John. We started this study in Year 2001, here we are four years later, and we're still going along, looking ourselves in the mirror of God's Word, seeing who we are, and resolving at the end of every service, resolving to repent, resolving to confess, to change, 
and to conform to the perfect image of Jesus Christ. Last week, we spent the whole sermon on three words. And afterwards, I couldn't believe the whole sermon was on three words. I was talking to Marcus after service, and, and I had much I had more no's. I had to stop almost two-thirds way through. But the whole sermon was on verse 4, Abide in me. And we spent our whole time just looking at that central command of Christ to believers. Now, why belabor this point? We did so because it is the essential command that Christ gives to Christians. This is the fundamental responsibility that you and I have, you and I have as Christians to abide in Him. We looked at the three aspects of abiding in Christ. That is a daily decision. It's a moment-by-moment decision. It is not a once-for-all where we first abide in Christ, we begin as a Christian, and we're just like on an escalator. It carries us the rest of the way. No, every day, every moment, we need to decide to abide in Christ, to remain, to continue, to be connected with the living Savior, to consider Him in all our ways. Not only that, it talks about the quality of our relationship with Christ. That as we abide with Christ, some Christians have a poor relationship with Christ. A weak relationship, almost non-existent. Though they are indeed a child of God, relationally they have no abiding relationship. While others have this dynamic, fruitful, stimulating, inspiring walk, abiding relationship with Christ. We talked about the quality, the degree, nature of this relationship And then we also consider the duration that Christ does not want just a believer, but He wants a follower. He wants a believer who continues to believe that He desires a long-term, a life-term, no, in fact, an eternal relationship with Him. When Christ calls His disciples and He calls us to abide in Him, He is commanding us to remain with Him. From this point on, to continue with Him. Not to be led astray to the left. Not to be led astray to the right. Not to diverge from our walk with Him. But to be steadfast and movable, connected with Him for the rest of our days. This is what Christ calls us to do. The Bible never commands us to be in Christ. If you are, in, if you are a Christian, you are already in Christ. You have an essential, forgive me for this word, ontological, uh, unbreakable union with Christ at the point of salvation. And Christ never commands us to do that. That is a reality. But Christ commands us, exhorts us here and throughout the New Testament to abide, to continue, to dwell, to remain in Christ. And we looked at those words last week, to keep our relationship with Christ, to keep the commandments, right? to continue in the faith. We look at the word to follow Christ, this idea of following diligently for the rest of our days. G. Campbell Morgan said, the word abide calls us to vigilance, lest at any time the experimental realization of our union with Christ should be interrupted. To abide in Him then is to have sustained conscious communion with Him. Arthur Pink said, To abide in Christ signifies the constant occupation of the heart with Him. Let me say that again. 
To abide in Christ means a constant occupation. We're occupied not with the world, not with our work, not with our friends, not with entertainment. What occupies the seed of our emotions, the control center of our being, is Christ. A daily active faith in Him which maintains the dependency of the branch upon the vine and the circulation of life of the vine in the branch. I mean, in those three words, what a plea of Christ. What a call to every Christian to abide in Him. Do you have the years to hear that plea of Christ this day? That simple command, that simple begging of Christ, abide in me. He gives us that command, and then He gives us five reasons why we must abide in Christ. You know, He's not just giving us advice, you know, just because He has nothing else to do, you know, like our parents are prone to do, or they were prone to do. Just, I don't know, you know, just nag, just for the sake of nagging. Tell us to do things because, you know, just they have nothing else. They just want to communicate with us. And their only form of communication is to, is to nag. So they just talk to us. That's not what Christ is doing here. Christ is calling us to abide in Him because it is so important, so key, so essential for the Christian. He gives us, in the next four verses, five verses, five reasons why we must abide in Christ. The first reason is found in verse 4. We must abide in Christ because we cannot bear fruit unless we abide in Him. Abide in me and I in you as a, bear, as a branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. For a branch, it has one job, one responsibility, to bear fruit, stay connected to the vine. The branch cannot force itself to bear fruit. The branch has no power, no life ability to bear fruit apart from being connected to the vine. So the branch is concerned about one thing, remain connected. If I just con- I stay connected to the vine, I will bear fruit. Christ says, it is likewise with you. You must abide in Christ. Because... It is an utter impossibility for the Christian to bear fruit, let alone even sustain a relationship with Christ, to continue in Christ, unless you have a faithful, obedient, dynamic relationship with Jesus Christ. It's the only way. Sad to say that so many Christians, they don't abide in Christ. They abide in the past. And they live in the glory days. You ask them about their Christian life, it's always, you know, the glory days. Yeah, ten years ago, man, I got saved. I was a drunkard, I was a thief, I was a liar. God saved me ten years ago. And they live their Christian lives abiding in that salvation experience. That's all they have. Their relationship with Christ reduced to that event, that experience, that emotion that they experienced 5, 10, 20 years ago, and right now they're not abiding in Christ. And that's all they have. And of course, they're not bearing fruit. Others abide in external religion, in rituals, in habits. Others abide in emotions or songs even. Others abide not to Christ, but to Christians. Their Christian life is the relationships they have with fellow Christians. Nothing directly with Christ. And they think by abiding in these things, 
they can sustain their Christian lives and bear fruit. And what happens to such people? They soon hit a wall. I mean, they hit a wall big time. They crash and burn. And they are found to have no fruit. Why? Because all along, they were connected to these peripheral things. But they were not connected to Jesus Christ. And because they have separated themselves from Christ, they were hiding next to other vines. They looked like they, were, uh, they had life. But when they're exposed, they're exposed as brown branches. They're dead, dying, withered. And they have no fruit. They have no fruit. First reason... We must abide in Christ. Second reason, not only fruit. It's not just Christians can't bear fruit without Christ. Our Lord said in verse 5, Apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from me, forget even fruit. You can't do nothing apart from me. In the Greek, there are two negatives there. And no English translation rightly, ably uh, communicates that. Christ said, you can do nothing whatsoever apart from me. You can do nothing, not at all, without abiding in me. Dr. John Gill, nothing that is spiritually good. No, not, not anything at all. Be it little or great, easy or difficult to be performed, cannot think even a good thought, speak a good word, or do a good action without Christ. Christ did not say, Without you, I cannot do anything. Right. He chooses to use us, but that's his, according to his pleasure. He can do all things without us. But the opposite is not the case. We can do nothing without him. I mean, consider that phrase right there. Let's stop and just, you know, let's marinate our minds and saturate our hearts with this simple statement. Apart from me, you can do nothing. You know, we're taught in the world human potential. You know, we're, we're powerful. We are, we form our own destiny. We have strength. The world is our oyster. We can do all things, right? The Bible contradicts that statement completely. Apart from Christ, we can do nothing. You know, I don't know about you, but these words startle me. In my first study, I could hardly believe it. I, I asked that question. I mean, is that right? I mean, is that true? Can this be real? We can't produce anything good, any good, any God-honoring deed apart from Christ. Is that, is that an accurate statement? Because I've seemed to experience something contrary to that. I've, there have been times in the past where I was not abiding in Christ. And I think I did good things. I know there were times when I was in this clear sin. And uh, I encourage people. I produce some good fruit. You know, I know people who have been exposed as unqualified. But during that time when they're unqualified in sin, man, I heard their preaching. I was ministered, to, ministered by them and I was encouraged. They, they did good, good works. You know, I know even non-Christians that do good things. That maybe abound in good works. Is that true? Because my experience tells me otherwise. And then I considered Isaiah 64.6, where the, where the prophet Isaiah said, 
All our righteous deeds are like filthy rags in the sight of God. All our righteous deeds are like filthy rags in the sight of God. Well, here's what Isaiah is saying. There are these righteous deeds that Israel has performed. And in Israel's perspective, in Israel's mindset, they are righteous deeds. They are good works. But Isaiah, by his prophecy, what is prophecy? Revelation. He reveals God's perspective. He discloses, he unveils the truth. From our side, it looks good, but Isaiah says, this is the truth, this is the reality from God's perspective. They are not righteous deeds. They are not good works. In fact, they are like filthy rags. And, you know, every time I quote this verse, I have to state, mention this, they are like menstrual rags. That's how disgusting it is in the sight of God. Here, men do good works and we say, good deeds. We're so deceived. We're so deluded apart from Christ. God says, it's not just that those are, you know, just non-good deeds. They're neutral deeds. No. They're the opposite. They're menstrual rags. They're disgusting in the sight of God. Well, likewise, with our sanctification... As Christians, it is the same thing. If we do works out of the flesh, out of our self-will, motivated by pride, if we reject our dependence upon God and exert our own will and produce fruit, good works, good deeds, whether at home, at work, at church, relationships, ministry, evangelism, and we try to do these good things, and we might look at it and go, wow, Brother, man, that's awesome. Good job, your, your Bible knowledge. How God is using you, what you're doing, man, that's, that's, that's great. Might look like good deeds. But if we do it apart from Christ, Christ said you can do nothing. That means if our lives are not the overflow of our abiding in Christ, but they're done in the flesh, that means in Christ's eyes, in God's eyes, same thing. They're like filthy rags. They are filthy rags. Christ is right. Christ is true. Apart from me, apart from Christ, we can do nothing. Psalm 16.2, the psalmist quote, stated it well. He said to the Lord, You are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. I have nothing of worth, nothing of goodness. I cannot produce anything of value Apart from you. You know, that, that phrase right there is it's just incredible. It's, it goes against everything, not every, but it goes against what I've experienced in life. It goes against what I've been taught as a child. It goes against what the culture, television, movies, what this world tells me. It goes against what my heart tells me. But let God be true, every man a liar. This is the truth. Apart from Christ, we can do nothing. Therefore, I want to just camp here for a little bit. You know, we're going through our outline. You should have it in your hands. But in this po- second point, I want, to, I want to drive this home a little bit. I don't want to just move on and go to verse 6. But I want to stop at verse 5 and, and consider apart from Christ, we can do nothing. 
and consider the attitude that you and I must have so that we would affirm this important doctrine, that we might wear it in our lives, that we might adorn this truth by our attitudes, by our behavior, by our decisions. It should be, this is where we should live. We should live like this. We should minister this way. We should be husbands and wives, fathers and mothers, brothers and sisters, workers, students. According to this verse, apart from Christ, we can do nothing. Apart from Christ, we can do no good thing. So let's consider five attitudes that we must have to affirm this truth. First of all, therefore, because of this, our emphasis in life must be on abiding, not producing. The emphasis on our lives must be on abiding, not producing. Our focus of our heart should be faithfulness, not the results. We should say results are unimportant. Results are largely insignificant. My experience, my emotion, what the, the turnout, how it comes out is, is insignificant. What is important is the process. How we go about producing. That is vital. That is significant. For example, if our family life is difficult, we're prone to say, okay, I'm going to give more time to my family. I'm going to listen more to my wife. I'm going to talk more to my husband. I'm going to spend more time at home. Our response to difficulty in ministry is, I'm going to study more. Right? I'm going to preach more or minister more or meet with more people. Our work is struggling. I'm going to work harder, go earlier and stay later. Right? My grades are not doing well, so I'm going to study harder. Well, my relationships are weak. My friendships are weak. I'm going to spend more time with people. See, we're focused on the wrong place. If we're struggling in these areas, we need to emphasize abiding in Christ. Forget our families. Forget work. Forget friendships. Forget your grades. Forget your ministry. Cast it aside. If that goes downhill, let it be. Because apart from Christ, we can do nothing. Our emphasis should be abiding in Christ. That should be our sole passion. I want to remain with Christ and follow Christ, continue with Christ, and nurture my relationship with Christ. And the result, you know, if my family does well or not, work does well or not, ministry well or not, that's up to the Lord. But I want to abide in Christ our first and foremost investment of our effort and energy and time must be an abiding in Christ because apart from me, we can do nothing. Second attitude is we must understand and live out the truth that God is glorified in two ways. Not just one, but two ways. Understand and live out the truth that God is glorified in two ways. The first way we know this, verse 8. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. We look at that and you go, wow, that's great. God is glorified by me producing fruit. So I'm in. We think, let's go. I'm going to bear fruit. We give it all. We lay it on the line. Right? We give all our zeal and effort thinking if we just bear fruit, then we will glorify God. But before we do that, we need to consider the second criteria of bearing fruit. 
Right? It's not just by more effort. You know, I have an illustration here. It's here, so I might as well use it, right? <laughs> you know. Um, this past uh, Summer Olympics, I actually saw this, and I read this recently, and I'm using it. You might have seen it on TV as well. There was this guy on a three-position rifle event, a guy named Matt Emmons. He was one shot away from winning the gold medal in the 2004 Olympics. This guy was a master rifleman. He was so far ahead of everyone else, all he needed to do is hit his target anywhere on the target and he won. Right? So he doesn't need a bullseye. Just hit the target and he wins. Now, he's been training since he was a young child, so he could do this with one hand tied behind his back. And he could do it with one eye, you know, like kind of mock his competitors, kind of get a mirror and you know, do that kind of trick shot. Because all he needs to hit is the target. Well, he hit the target and the the best score is 10. He got an 8. But you know what happened? In that moment, he focused on the wrong target. He was on lane 2. But he shot at lane 3. And so he got a 0. And he ended up in 8th place. He asked the judges, can I have a takeover? <laughs> right? The mulligan here? No, no, no. We can't do that. There are rules. If you miss your target, doesn't matter if you had other targets, you miss your target, you get a zero. Instead of a gold, coming back as a champion, you come back in eighth place. Well, same thing in our glory of God. We think if I just hit the targets, any target, if I just bear spiritual fruit, I will give God glory. No, that is just one part of it. There is a second rule. God is glorified not just by the fruit we produce, but how we produce the fruit. How we produce it. Fruit must be produced by abiding in Christ. By depending on Christ. God is glorified in our weakness. God is glorified when we live out the truth that we can do nothing apart from Christ. And we depend upon Him for everything. And then through abiding in Him, and out of the overflow of our relationship with Him, we bear fruit. Then and only then does God receive glory. If we just produce fruit of our own strength, of our own intelligence, personality, leadership and ability, God gets no glory. I get the glory. You get the glory. 1 Peter 4.11, that's why Paul said, anyone who speaks, anyone who serves, must do so by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 4.11, to Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Paul said, if you do anything in the church, do it by the power of God. Do it by the strength of Christ. Do it all by giving Him glory so that He would receive all praise. In fact, this is what Christ modeled. Even Christ Himself, in His incarnational ministry for three and a half years, what did He say over and over and over again? John 5.19 Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of His own accord, but only what He sees the Father doing. John 5.30 I can do nothing on my own. 
John 8.30, when the Son of Man is lifted up, you will know that I am He and I do nothing of my own authority. Why did Christ say that repeatedly? Because He was doing it not by His own power, but by the power of the Holy Spirit and the, and the power that God had given to Him so that God, His Father, might receive the glory. Even Christ Himself communicate to his people that he's depending upon God the Father. He's doing it dependent upon his Father so that our Father, our God, will receive the glory. How much more so? Third attitude that we ought to have to affirm this doctrine that we can't do nothing apart from Christ. Boast of our own sinfulness, boast of our weakness and inadequacy at the same time. Live in obedience to Christ, to the glory of Christ. Boast of our sinfulness, at the same time, live in obedience by the power of Christ. I think I have set a poor example in this area, and that is why it is being perpetuated in our church. And I hope to change that and stop that at this very moment. There's a sense in our church, wrong kind of boasting about weaknesses. And therefore, a wrong understanding of repentance. There are too many of us who just confess our weaknesses and repent of our sins and always go on and on about our failings and about our sins and our unfaithfulness and, and so on and so on. It's like a broken record. And they repented five years ago, four years ago, same thing. Three retreats ago, you know, two years ago. And they are still praying and thinking that that is God-honoring. That just this constant confession, constant brokenness and remaining in that weak state. That is not glorifying to God. What is Repentance. Repentance means to change, to turn around. So if you are sinning, it's not just, oh, I'm sinning, I'm just weak, I'm just frail. Repentance means I'm going to stop sinning. I'm going to stop being so self-focused. I'm going to stop being a wimp, a spiritual weakling. I'm going to repent. I confess my sins, but from this moment on, I want to live in obedience I want to live in the power of the Holy Spirit. I want to walk in a manner worthy of Christ. That is repentance. And that is how we ought to live. If day by day, month by month, year by year, all we do is confess and bemoan our failings, that is not affirming fully, apart from Christ, we can do nothing. Yes, apart from Christ, we can do nothing. So I'm abiding in Christ, so that I can do something, right? There is, I, want, I want to do something because I am abiding in Christ now. It is not, I can't do anything because I'm apart from Christ. Right. Fourth mindset is to esteem Christ alone for all our good deeds. Esteem Christ alone for all our good deeds. Because apart from Christ, we can do nothing we give Christ glory for all the good things in our lives. All the good things. 
Deuteronomy 8.17-18 through 18. Deuteronomy 8.17-18 through 18. Beware lest you say in your heart, and we would not say this outwardly because, you know, that's wrong doctrine. But we would say this, you know, quietly in our hearts. Beware lest you say in your heart, My power, my might have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is He who gave you the power to get that wealth, that He may confirm His covenant that He swore to your fathers, that is, to this day. You must not forget that everything good is produced by God and by His power. Colossians 1, 28 and 29, talking about Paul's incredible ministry, Him we proclaiming, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, and you know, he labors, he agonizes, he strives. And then he says, and he gives glory to God, struggling with all his energy that works powerfully within me. He says, yeah, I'm the one you see toiling and striving and suffering. But the source of this power is not from me. He says, it is from God. Years ago, one of my high school students asked to interview me. And, uh, you know, I was encouraged, you know, why she wanted to interview me. And she said, you know, she was, I'm one of her, you know, she respected me for the work that I did in the church. And one question she asked me was, Pastor James, what have you accomplished for the Lord? What are things that you're proud of in your ministry that you've done for, for Christ in the church? And by God's grace, I was able to give a biblical answer. And this answer stays with me to this day. And this answer is what keeps me sane in ministry. That allows me a semblance of humility in my heart. I said to her, nothing. I've done absolutely nothing good for Christ. If I've done anything good, anything worthwhile, anything of encouragement or value to anyone, God did it all. God, may He receive all the praise, because He did everything, first and the last. And then I told her, but every sin that I've committed, if I've offended anyone, discouraged anyone, and I have, all the pain that I've caused in people's lives, I am responsible for these things. James Shin alone. God didn't author those things. All those things I committed because I was not abiding in Christ. Fourth mindset is to give glory, all esteem. Final one is this. The only reason that you are failing to bear fruit in any area of your life it's because you are not abiding in Christ. Can you, can you say that? Can you, you know, say those just wonderful two words? You know, when you struggle with your spouse, when you have a conflict at work, when you're raising your children or difficulty in ministry, can you say those two words? It's me. I right, try it right now. Everyone, just, can you say, it's me? Right? Can you say those words? It's not my boss. It's not my wife. It's not my children. Right? It's not the church. It's me. Right? The reason I'm not bearing fruit in this area is because I am not abiding in Christ. 
That's the only reason I'm not bearing fruit. It's not because of my personality. It's not because of my upbringing. It's not because of what they didn't teach me or didn't give to me. The only reason is I am not faithful in my walk with Christ. Well, five mindsets that, that affirm. Verse 5, that apart from Christ we can do nothing. Let's go back to our main outline. Why we must abide in Christ. Because apart from Christ we can't bear fruit. Not just fruit, we can't do anything apart from Christ. Thirdly, not only do we not produce fruit, not only do we, uh, can we do nothing, we are destroyed if we do not abide in Christ. Who is a true Christian? Someone who continues with Christ. 1 John 2.19, right? They do not belong to us because if they, if they belonged to us, they would have continued with us. Not continuing with Christ can only mean one thing. You are not a Christian. And if you're not a Christian, then you are destroyed. Verse 6, if anyone does not continue in me, consider the four elements of punishment. He is thrown away like a branch. The vine dresser, the father, goes to the vineyard. He evaluates each branch and he realizes this branch is broken off. It's torn himself apart from the vine. So he is thrown away like a branch. He is cast off. Secondly, therefore, because he is separated from the vine, the branch starts to wither and die. It turns brown. The unforgettable example is Judas. And then the branches are gathered by the gardener and his workers. They, all the dead branches are brought together. And the fourth element of judgment, of punishment, it's thrown into the fire and burned. Thrown into the fire and burned. Matthew thirteen forty one. The Son of Man will send His angels and they will gather out of His kingdom all who cause sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Matthew seven nineteen. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Matthew 13:40 Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. Revelation 20:15 And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Fourth reason why we must abide in Christ. Our prayers will be answered. Our prayers will be answered. John fifteen seven. If, if you abide in me, and my words abide in you. Ask whatever you will, and it will be done for you. We learn from this verse that answered prayer is a reward that God gives to those who obey Him. Hear that again. Answered prayer is a reward that God gives to believers who abide in Christ. You know, we have a daughter, Elizabeth. She's two and a half years old. She loves food. I mean, sometimes, you know, our financial budget is taking a hit because she eats so much. You know, the Korean word for beef, for meat, is kogi. One morning, I kid you not, I woke her up and she said, Daddy, kogi. <laughs> That's like her first word. Food. All right. Well, she loves snacks. She loves goldfish. She loves Cheerios. She loves wafers. Everything. I mean, she, 
she has yet rejected, except for kimchi, because it's too spicy, she has yet rejected any kind of food. Or if Elizabeth is dishonoring to her parents, she's rebelling against mom and dad, she's not obeying, she's not following our commands, and she asks us for snacks. Elizabeth, right? No. Right? Dad, can we go to Disneyland? No way. Right? You know, can you do this for me? Can you give me this food? No way. Once in a while, by grace, out of grace, okay, you know, I'll give you some, here, two goldfish, right? <laughs> grace, right? Even though you're rebellious, right? But if Elizabeth is obeying mom and dad, she's honoring her, her mom, respecting her dad, and is delighting in, in following our commands. She says, Dad, can I have some goldfish? Take the whole bag, you know? Can I have some kogi? Let's go to Ruth Chris, you know? Let's, you know, order the big, you know, filet mignon and give you the whole thing. Right? That's what Christ is saying here in verse 7. Right? If you're disobedient, not abiding in Christ, not having a relationship with Christ, and you go to praying, God, Jesus, will you give me this? Will you help me here? Will you serve me this way? God's like, by grace, He might answer one or two requests out of, out of ten. But that's not the promise. The promise is He wants to reward us for abiding in Him. If we're following Him, honoring Him, ask whatever you will. You're beautiful in my sight. If you're abiding in the vine, ask me anything. Ask me for the salvation of your husband or wife. Ask me for the salvation of your children. Ask me to bear fruit in your work. Ask me to bear fruit in your ministry, in your relationships. Ask me anything. And I will, be, I will bear fruit in your life in any area you desire. As a reward, I will answer your prayers. As a reward. And the final reason why we must abide in Christ. First of all, by this, God is glorified. Verse 15, verse 8, By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit. So we must abide in Christ. And as Christians, we must bear fruit. Why? Because this is how God is glorified when we produce fruit in, in, in our lives. God had chosen Abraham and his people to reveal his glory to the world by bearing fruit, but they failed to do so. And Christ here in John 15 is starting a new covenantal program with the church, with His disciples. He says, the people of Israel have failed. The nation of Israel have been cut off. The church, Christians, the followers of the way, the people of the way, disciples bear fruit that you might glorify Me. How do we glorify God? By bearing fruit. It tells the world the fruit of righteousness has been born in our lives. Philippians 1.11 It tells the world the gospel is true. That God saves sinners. Not just positionally, but practically. Look at my life. Look at my family. Look at my, how I work. There's righteousness. And it's not what I produce. It's what God produced. And it tells the world the gospel, that the gospel is true. That Christ saves sinners. It undoes the damage done in Genesis 3. Here God created man in His own image. And that image was marred when man sinned. When we abide in Christ and bear fruit, we become more like Christ, more like God. We restore the paradise that was lost in Genesis 3. How is that accomplished? By bearing fruit in our lives. By becoming more and more like God every day. We glorify God 
by bearing fruit. Because by our fruit, gospel is extended to all nations. John 5.16, the same way, let your light shine before men, that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Glorify your God in heaven. How does non-believers glorify God when they see our lives? God will use that with the couple with the gospel to save them. First Peter 2.12, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day He visits us. How will they glorify God? By our examples, by our lives of righteousness, and that they're humbled and be saved. That's how they will glorify God. You know, we live in this neighborhood in cul-de-sac. There's six houses, five, six houses surrounding us. And we make it a point on Christmas and Easter to go visit them and give them our family cards and serve them and develop a relationship. Each their families are so wonderful. I mean, we've had the opportunity to share the gospel with, with several of them. We've had dinner over there at their house. They've had dinner at our, our, our house. You know, they have snacks at our house. They've had, you know, whenever I go with people, they, they offer me beer. I don't know, is it, is it how I look like? I don't know, but I'm a pastor, but they offer me beer. But I take Diet Coke. But, you know, I go over there and minister the gospel. We have great opportunities. All except our neighbor right next to us. Right next to us. This guy, they're really busy. Family of three, but they have four cars. And they park in our house. We have our, you know, driveway and our right front door. They park their extra car right in front of our house every day. That car's been sitting in front of our house for like three weeks straight. Like they don't use it. I'm thinking, like, sell the car. I'm saying, and the, the son is like 20 years old. God, you know, maybe he go to school abroad or, you know, like, <laughs> he gets married and takes the car with him. But in the cars. So at the park in the driveway, and when I back up our car, I have to make sure I don't hit the car. It's a little uncomfortable. So, you know, right in front of my house every single day. Well, one, two Saturdays ago, I was studying upstairs in my room, and I heard that car engine run. And the neighbor take that car and drive it out. First time the car didn't move in like weeks. I'm like, here's my chance. Right? <laughs> you know, so it wasn't over. I run downstairs, I get in my car, and I back it out of my driveway. And I parked my car in front of my front door. And I turned off the engine. And I'm thinking, man, what are you doing, James? <laughs> man, like, come on, you're a Christian, you know? You're supposed to serve your neighbors. Love them, right? Be a good example. Who cares about this parking spot? Live such good lives among the pagans that they accuse you of doing wrong. That they might glorify God on the day of His visitation. So by God's grace, I turned that engine again and reparked my car exactly where it was in the driveway. Well, yesterday, or Friday, just two days ago, I was walking in. He comes up to me and says, Reverend James, well, yes, my mom passed away, 94 years old. I'm hurting. I'm in so much pain. Will you pray for me? I, I prayed for him. This Saturday, we're gathering together as a family at 3 o'clock. We're going to grieve together. We've got family coming in from all over the place. Will you come and pray with us? Bring your family and share God's word. Of course I'll do that. Yesterday at 3 o'clock we went over there and they're from western India. And they had people from Germany. Right? From India. From all over the place. And he said, this is Pastor James. He's my neighbor. Right? He wants to come and pray 
and teach God's word for us. Let's all listen. They all gave me their attention. So with my, my whole family there, opened up the John 11, preached the gospel, preached how Jesus wept over the loss of a loved one, but Jesus promises resurrection of life to those who believe in Christ alone and share the gospel with them. They invited us in to have a meal with them, right? To, to spend time with them, to console them. I had the opportunity again to share Matthew 5, right? verse 3, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. You want blessing? You have to be hungry for Christ. Understand your spiritual bankruptcy and He will bless you. Have the opportunity to proclaim the gospel. Why? By God's grace. I was bearing fruit in my life. You know, if I had taken that parking spot, right? he would have said, man, this selfish guy. Right? Live such good lives among the world so that we might have the opportunity to proclaim the gospel. That is what bearing fruit will do in your life. It will give you opportunities for the gospel. They will see your life and they will see holiness. They will see purity. They will see righteousness. that They don't see anywhere else in the world and they'll come to you and you'll have an opportunity for the gospel. That's why you must abide in Christ. And then finally, and so, verse 8, prove to be my disciples. Prove to, prove to be my disciples. Fruit reveals the root. Your fruit reveals what kind of tree you are. If a believer produces much fruit, the result is assurance of salvation, that your profession of faith is genuine. So right now, if you see your life and you have no fruit in your life, you should be suspicious of your profession of faith. You should. Right. And not fruit in terms of man's perspective. Remember Isaiah 64, 6? From God's perspective, am I abiding? Am I producing these things by abiding in Christ's Word? By following Him? By having a relationship with Him? If, you're, if that's not the case, you should be suspicious of your profession of faith. You should doubt it. You should examine yourself to see if you're in the faith, unless, of course, you fail the test, 2 Corinthians 13.5. If today you see a semblance of fruit, you see some fruit in your life and you're growing in those areas, you should work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to want to act according to His good purpose. Philippians 2.12 You should all the more nourish, nurture this relationship with Christ so that you might continue to bear fruit in your life. If you are abiding in Christ, and by abiding in Christ, you're bearing fruit in your life, at home, family, work, church, with the lost, it is proof, it is evidence that you are indeed a child of God, the glory of Christ. Will you begin? Will you continue to abide in Christ? Will you see the utter importance of that simple command given to us? Let us pray. Our Father, we do thank you for this privilege, this opportunity of a lifetime, this joy to be able to abide in you, to have a relationship with the risen Lord, with the living Christ. Oh Lord, day by day, moment by moment, we might consider you, we might consider your words, we might walk in the, according to your commands, 
Lord, that moment by moment we might walk in a manner worthy of your truth and that through abiding in you, Lord, we will bear fruit, not for our glory, but for your glory alone. Lord, grant to each believer here to know the right place to invest their energy. Grant all of us wisdom and understanding to know how we are to grow, how we are to abide in you, how we are to bear fruit. It is not by more effort in this world, but it's simply a time with you by abiding in you. May the saints that are abiding in you bear much fruit to encourage, Lord, the rest of us to do so all the more. We thank you, Lord, for your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.